Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so we're here with our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how are you doing? Good morning, Bradley. I've missed you. You've been gone for two weeks. Yeah. It feels like forever. Did a lot of traveling, and I have to say, I I really enjoyed all of it, but by the very end, uh, I was super eager to not just get back here in the studio with you, but just to get back into a routine. I didn't realize how much I relied on some basic stuff until all of a sudden they went two weeks Basic stuff like scheduling and just having like Yeah, that or like I go to the trainer or like, you know, somehow at home I figure out how to sort of reliably meditate every day. All of a sudden you're traveling and even though you have nothing else to do, somehow you have no time to (laughs) meditate or whatever it is. So I just feel like uh, it was good to be gone. It's good to be back. Perfect. So um, I guess we'll get into that a little bit because we're going to talk about some of the recommendations you have based on your trip. Um, but I think we should start by talking about the situation in Russia, not that we have any um, supreme insight into that. but that it's No, I mean, the, the one thing, look, a few things. So one is um, I think it actually did resolve itself about as well as it possibly could. While for, for the world? For Putin? For the world. For, who, right? no, for the world. Because while, of course, we'd all love to see Putin deposed, you know, a true civil war in a country with nuclear weapons where you're not sure who's in charge is unbelievably scary and dangerous, far more so than probably what we're looking at in the Ukraine. And therefore, you know, like, look, would we prefer that Putin not be the dictator of Russia? Sure. If I said to you, you know, there's a 5% chance now that an entire nuclear war will eradicate all life on the globe as we know it. Or you can eliminate that risk, but Putin stays. You would say Putin stays, right? You don't care enough, right? So considering that, uh, I think it, it kind of resolved itself for now as well as it could. The thing that I was wondering about, because I'm, I'm not a Russia expert or foreign policy expert or, or anything like that, other than given that my father is Russian and, and grew up and, you know, I've been around that that community for a very long time, my whole life. Um, the notion of meaningful cultural change there, I think, is really unlikely. Like uh, yesterday, someone was asking me about, like, oh, is this a good opportunity now for VCs to really plunge into Eastern Europe and Russia because everything's a little chaotic, and that's when the, the market is a good opportunity. So who, like, someone asked you that. Wow, that's a, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, and I was like, no, because <laughs> no. That, that culture which sort of is very resistant to change, has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries, and I, I don't think it will change. But but here's the question. So, so we have our own version of Putin and Trump, right? In fact, they're, they seem to be buddies. Um, Trump will go on trial sooner or later for espionage. It seems likely... It's not really for espionage, is it? Yeah, that's like 31 of the 37 counts. Is it espionage? Okay. Yeah. Um, it seems likely they have an excellent case just based on the fact that they brought it at all, right? First criminal indictment of a president like that. Um, so um, let's say he's convicted. We're also seeing his numbers fucking surge in the Republican primary, right? He, he, he widened, I saw a poll this morning, I forget who it was from, but he widened his lead over DeSantis by like another seven or eight points post-indictment, right? So January 6th was a very small-scale version of an insurrection, not what, you know, Prigozhin did with 25,000 troops kind of marching, you know, through Russia. Um, But let's say Trump does get convicted of espionage. All of these crazy militias around the country that are all communicating on the dark web and whatever else, is there a risk of a January 6th times 100 here? Yeah, I think that there really is. And, you know, you can secure the courts in downtown, wherever the trial is and whatever else. But, you know, Miami there for this one. But um, 
if people choose to engage in acts of domestic terrorism in, the, in their home communities, you know, those are really hard to prevent. So um, I, I think that as we look at what happened in Russia, we need to be mindful that there was a version of that that already, A, has happened here, that was January 6th, and B, um, the conditions, whether it's Trump's trial or the election, exists for this to happen on a much bigger scale. Let's talk about the dynamics for a second within the Republican Party and why that's happening. So um, there are obviously all these alternative candidates, uh, DeSantis being the, the by far the biggest one, but but many others in the race. If, if you're if you're advising them, as we've talked about you doing, even though that's just on the here on the podcast in Fantasyland. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm strongly supporting President right. Biden for re-election. Right, right. Um, but how do you how do you use the like the criminal case against Trump in a way that doesn't just turn the whole Republican base against you? Like, it, it, you just have to just stay away from it, not touch it. Like, if you're Chris Christie, like all so he's. He, he, I mean, here's the thing. So, if you're the, the question is, what are you really running for? Right. So, if if, if you look at that field. Ron DeSantis is running for president, right? right? He genuinely wants to be president, is trying to Thinks be president. Thinks he can be, right. right? You have other people who are running for either relevance or vice president, right? So Nikki Haley, your favorite, like, it doesn't seem like there's a world where she wins the nomination, but she's a pretty reasonable VP choice for somebody, right? That that could certainly make sense. Someone like Tim Scott, you know, we're talking about him. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about him. For Christie, I think it's a little bit of just, this, he's, he's not good at a lot of things, but he is very good at this sort of just prosecuting a narrative and an argument. And no one expects him to, it's not like last time, no one expects him to win. So there's no real, he can't really fail, diminish expectations. So, and, you know, the press sort of loves anything that beats up on Trump. And so he's going to get, you know, really good press for the next, you know, uh, I don't know, when's Iowa in, in late January? So between now and eight months or whatever it is. And he then can, he, can he hang in that long? No, he'll start getting, um, yeah, because you know what? If all you're if you're not running ads, if all you're doing is running an earned media campaign, so you're just traveling to places and holding press conferences it's and appearing at debates, it's it's pretty cheap, right? right? You don't need a lot. So, so um, he's just calling in his Jersey guys, and they're giving him some money to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know, I mean, literally, you don't. There's no security risk. He can fly commercial like to Iowa or whatever. God, that'd be so depressing. So, to run for well, except, you, you know, in a weird jets. way, he'll he'll like it because. Democrats who are happy to see him attacking Trump will come up to him and, and say, I hope you win the primary. Of course, they'll never support him, but, you know, I hope you win the primary, whatever it is. So point is, there are people running for different things. Um, and the hard one is if you actually want to beat Trump and be the nominee. So that's the, the box Santos is in. And I will say that we on this podcast have been saying for quite a while now that when DeSantis was being crowned by everyone as like the front runner, the next president, everything else, you and I said, look, be careful because the person two years out that the media says is, is the person often is not, whether it's Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton or, or whoever. No, he seems dead practically. I mean, I know he's not, but but the, the it's just so weird how the narrative got flipped on him. Yeah, and it's hard to see it, as Trump just keeps gaining more and more steam, you know, nobody really wants to back a loser. And so I'm not really sure what turns it around for him. And he's already gone so far crazy right on everything that there's nowhere really to move. And Trump's in the position, right, where he doesn't even need to engage any of the other candidates. I mean, he he could even back off on DeSantis, although it seems to have worked really well. Yeah, I think he's good at little, it. He enjoys it. You know, right. whatever. I, look, Trump certainly knows how to speak to his base, right? And he will continue to do so. And the truth is, you know, the, if, if what you want is to see Biden get reelected, 
um, the status quo on the Republican side is probably the best thing you could hope for. So speaking of uh, sort of fringy candidates, um, or well, I guess we haven't really talked about two fringy. Well, I guess Christie's a fringe candidate. Yeah. Um, on the Democratic side, uh, having uh, the fringe candidate having his own little sort of bubble moment is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, largely based on being on podcasts and getting yeah, some attention Yeah, it's like what we way. just said with Christie. It's an, it's an earned media phenomenon because people reporters have nothing else to really talk about. And, and so that is not, to your mind, sort of material for, for Biden? He can, just, he can just wait for that to fizzle out? Does he need to engage no, in any way? No, I don't way? think so. I mean, no, I don't think he engage at all. Um, look, I'm sure that Biden's numbers in some of the primaries may be a little less than they would like. Maybe he gets, you know, 60% of the vote somewhere, and they say, well, look, you know, 37% of Democrats voted against him. Um, I, I just don't see anyone who, who is partisan enough to vote in a Democratic primary than voting for the Republican the following November. So I think it'll get sort of a bunch of noise and attention. It'll be an annoyance for Biden. Um, you know, Biden won't want to debate him, and then the press will sort of try to egg him on and, and get him to do it. But the reality is, you know, whether RFK drops out in January or April or at the convention or whatever it is, he's long forgotten by the general election. So I think this is sort of a lot of nothing. What about Hunter Biden? So there's talk in the House, obviously, of an impeachment proceeding against the yeah. Attorney General um, based on the deal that Hunter Biden got. What He got a pretty good deal, I'll tell you. <laughs> really seemed like it. I mean, I'm again, I'm pro-Biden, but like, I don't know. I mean, I kind of almost wonder. Look, the good news is I, I, I do think that Merrick Garland um, is a pretty independent Attorney General, and he's not a political hack, and I don't think that he was carrying anyone's water. Um, but I also think that they gave him the best deal they possibly could. And so, you know, the, the real question isn't really House Republicans running impeachment proceedings because they're just preaching to the choir. They're the same people who already hate the Bidens or whatever else. It's do independent voters feel like, you know, there probably was more uh, fire there than, than they were willing to acknowledge, and maybe Biden was at least aware of it, if not complicit in it. And it's just really, is it another reason why independents might have to stay home next November? And that's the question. So you'd ask me just to, to look at some of the sort of long shot candidates mm -hmm. who'd run to see who'd really gotten anything out of it, um, who'd got, you know, who for just sort of throwing their hat in the ring. It's kind of interesting. I'll throw some names out there because it was fun to see, like, so I just went from 96 on, and there were people like Steve Forbes, Maury Taylor, Alan Keyes, Wesley Clark, Dennis Kucinich. Okay, so let's stop there. Yeah. So I would say it was those good. Are, those are from 96, 2000. Right. So, those are so ancient history a little Steve bit. Steve Forbes, it worked out for him, right? Did it? Yeah, we know who he is. Nobody else would know who he was otherwise. Did, and so he had the flat he tax, right? Because he wasn't Malcolm Forbes that created this thing. He was just a lucky sperm club kid. Right. He was like Connor Roy, but but did better. Yeah, <laughs> true. So you think so you think he got respect and people I mean we heard who he is but like he went on to do what probably nothing didn't, but didn't the Forbes you know, empire more or less collapse like look he, I think when he goes to his you know gala dinners or whatever it is is he still alive Steve Forbes uh, who knows but he was Let's probably say. for a while a little more feted yeah because he got attention. he's only seventy five years old wow he should run again he'd be <laughs> young God, he'd be one of the younger <laughs> candidates in the race um, yeah so look I mean I think the I think what we're at now is Politicians have realized that by running for president, even with zero chance of winning, 
they create a new layer of validation for themselves, which is I was on the debate stage for President of the United States. Look, Andrew Yang, who we like a lot around here, um, managed to go from someone that really wasn't particularly well known to someone who now is a force in politics. Um, because of Bernie Sanders went from this sort of crank independent senator from Vermont to the leader of a movement. Well, those are two very different things. Well, maybe, maybe when Sanders started out, he and Andrew Yang were more or less in the same spot. Yeah, I, I mean, San, like, Sanders uh, at a certain point actually became a viable candidate for right. the nomination. He's and, the and dream, the way, right, that you actually become like a you know, yeah, snowball. Yeah, in 2020, and, if the, he won the first few primaries. Absent COVID, who knows, he might have been the nominee. Right. Um, and Trump might have gotten reelected. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, there are, I, I genuinely think, even if they don't say the quiet part out loud, there are people who are either the candidates or the people right around them who say, of course, we're not going to be president, but participating in this process gives us some validation and credibility, which we could leverage into celebrity, money, whatever it is, my next book, you know, whatever it is in the future. Can I throw out some other names? Because yeah. they're fun, just see in case you have any reaction to them. Sure. So we also got uh, Michelle Bachman, John Huntsman, Herman Cain, uh, Ben Carson, Carly Farina. Um, and then the the 2020 list is kind of interesting because you uh, Tulsi Gabbard's kind of I guess she's on Fox all the I time. Mean, I don't know. Yeah, what, she made herself more relevant. Yeah, but she's kind of I, I don't I don't hate Tulsi Gabbard like she's you know I mean I'm I don't. The reality is I, I never pay attention to what she's saying. So I, other than believe, presuming that it's all kind of crazy, I ignore it. Um, Tom Steyer that didn't work out so well. He spent a lot of money. No, that probably wasn't wasn't worth it for him. Um, okay, so I came up with an idea. Based on uh, on the on the news of uh, Justice Alito taking luxury fishing trips, yeah, and I, for some reason I really thought this would appeal to you, but you shot it down right away. So the you know the Supreme Court justices make I think two hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year, mm -hmm. right? So they're at the very peak of their profession. They have these lifetime appointment jobs. They live in Washington D.C., which is an extremely expensive place to live, and they get paid what amounts to not a lot of money, um, and so. The fact that comparative to what they could earn in private practice, yeah, and compared to like anybody still who's five times the national average or whatever. Sure, but 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 they are at the very top of their profession. Yeah, yeah these mean, are people have, who would be making. You have fucking relief pitchers making two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars an outing. Like, sure, there are these are people who would be making five million bucks a year at their law firm, easy. Right. So why? So and then you have them this kind of like not very cool looking thing where they're taking trips with nope. people and it just it it looks bad. I don't probably isn't that bad. I don't know. But like, you know, look, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, a few things. One is okay, but here's my idea, yeah. and, then you, and then respond. Yeah. Was it just raise the salary, make them pay them a million bucks? A I year. just don't see. So, like, I'm not generally speaking. See, I thought you'd like that. I'm but all you know. for all kinds of structural changes, right? right? Like, I would be for look. You could make an argument that pay every member of Congress a million dollars because no, I don't want that. But saying, but saying you could make arguments for all kinds of structural changes. These are the that nine I would probably sharpest support. legal minds, like I, in the in the uh, yeah, the, the nine sharpest well, legal minds who satisfy the right political requirements at that particular moment. Um, <laughs> Good point. But um, here's the thing. So okay, so Lito's making a million bucks a year. He still can't afford the kinds of trips on his own that sure he, he can. Paying. Private plane to Alaska, that's, you know, from D.C., that's, what, 150 grand round trip, easy, 200? Like, right. so what, if he's a million, he's in a high-tax place in D.C., so now he's at 500,000, 40% of that's going to go to <laughs> flying private to Alaska? Right. Like, I, I just, if you say... So you think pay, he's still going to do it? I don't, I don't think you're, you're, the increase is material enough to change any the of their options or incentives. Okay. On the flip side, I think these are people whose legacies are incredibly important to them. 
Um, and while, of course, everybody likes nice shit, this is why people who are sort of super self-righteous on either side tend to get in trouble all the time because they're human and turns out nice stuff is better than not nice stuff. Um, but, so then they ultimately look hypocritical. But I think that if there's enough consistent sunlight and bad press and everything else, for the vast majority of justices, they will say it is not worth destroying my legacy over a flight to Alaska. Um, I saw this kind of um, uh, interesting chart about the percentage of uh, home buyers in various cities that are Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that New York is the second least popular market for Gen Z home buyers as a percentage of total home buyers. Yeah. The only one being higher is San Francisco. Those are obviously probably the two most expensive cities to live in in the United States. So that's obviously a factor. Um, but it seems, you know, when you have cities, so the, the cities with the, that lead the list are Salt Lake City, Louisville, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Nashville, and Phoenix. Um, so I, I, it seemed like this is kind of a long-term warning sign or something for New York City. If young people cannot afford to buy or do not want to buy houses or apartments here, that bodes poorly for the future of the city. And should that be some kind of, should that be on the sort of political radar mm -hmm. of... City Hall, of New York, of the governor I mean, in Albany. Hugo, we're sitting on a block with three or four legal weed shops within 100 feet of us. They can't shut those down. They're going to figure out the housing market. Um, I mean, there's no chance of that. But look, I, I would say this. So I, you know, <laughs> came to start living in Manhattan after college, right? And um, didn't buy my first apartment until I was 36, 37, something like that. Um, so... I don't know. Look, if if the answer is the talent is here, but they're renting, not buying, and except for those who truly, truly make it to the very top, you know, they'd rather move to Minneapolis than Scarsdale or Larchmont. Like, okay, you know, uh, as long as the talent's coming in. But look, that, that's also why I would be throwing open the borders. That's why I became get H one B visas. That's why I would basically, if if for as long as the most talented people from all over the world want to be here. Um, I don't really care if they're buying or renting or whatever it is. Um, they will create ideas, businesses, art, concepts, whatever it is, that generate activity and excitement and make New York City what it is. So, you know, if, if the article said Gen Z is fleeing New York and not coming here, um, that would certainly be a problem. The other thing is this, which is, you know, housing is the biggest purchase that people make in their lives in general. New York City housing is wildly expensive. And you're at a point where, A, most jobs let you work from home at least some of the time. B, the city's not in fantastic shape, right? Crime doesn't, fee doesn't feel great. Uh, quality of life doesn't feel great. Um, so, you know, it's not unreasonable people say, given how expensive this is, let me rent instead of buy. Right. So you don't, you'd mentioned that when you were working in, in City Hall, you'd work. You'd yeah. So this was, yeah, she was even before the, the parks department when I was like 21. Um, and thinking about sort of people who were my age at the time. And I said, you know what? So these are in some ways pretty good residents in the sense of you're spending every disposable dollar you have on entertainment. So you're you're keeping bars and restaurants and all of that stuff in, in business. Um, you don't really use city services, right? You, know, you don't have kids going to the schools. You're not getting any sort of social service benefits or anything like that. Um, 
you're paying your taxes because they're deducted from your, your paycheck every two weeks. You know, this is a, actually a pretty good tax base uh, for the city, and yet no one ever thinks about them. So the idea at the time was, why not create an agency, an office, or something that said, okay, people in their 20s, what are the little things that would make their lives easier and better? Um, and in fact, I think around the time that one of them was like reform to sort of real estate brokers and, you know, people not being able to get, you know, 15% of the total value of the lease for showing up for 20 minutes or something like that or whatever it is. But, you know, almost a consumer watchdog slash kind of entertainment. Shouldn't like the New York City partnership be doing this? I mean, attracting young people to the city is not there? If you went into a board meeting in New York City partnership between the, the people who work there and the people on the board, if the average age is below 74, I'd be shocked. Right. So no. So maybe there's an, that. A and they're they're thinking about like American Express and J.P. Morgan, you know. Um, so no, it, it it it. But I do think that it's worth thinking about. Like get back to the point you made earlier, which is there are different constituencies that may not be politically vocal, right? And so they they're not kind of. If you take the basic thesis of this podcast, which is every policy output is the result of a political input. They're not that relevant because they're really not voting in, in most stuff, right? Yeah, I guess you have some crossover with progressives or whatever it is. But overall, the people who are working in the private sector and creating wealth, as opposed to people working in the nonprofit sector and sucking up wealth, um, they're generally sort of not that politically relevant. But if you said, here are three or four or five categories of people who are not that politically relevant, but the truth is have a high, high ROI as taxpayers because they don't cause a lot of problems, they spend a lot of money, and they don't consume a lot from a, so, a social services standpoint. Um, what can we do to make this more attractive to them? That would be a really good idea. So I, I would love to see the city hall do it. And look, I think Eric Adams, in a way, is someone who really does embrace the nightlife of the city and the vitality of it and the energy no, and everything like else. Yeah. I think he'd be good at this. Yeah, yeah, that suits him. So um, you sent me an article from the New York Times about harsh new fentanyl laws igniting debate over how to combat yeah. overdose crisis. And your concern is that we're going down the same path that we've gone to the sort of like Yeah, I just, here's the thing. Route. So like when I was in Illinois, when I was deputy governor there, it's when the, the meth crisis was sort of at its peak. And, you know, southern Illinois was absolutely ravaged by it. You know, when you, when you watch a show, Ozark, for example, that's basically southern Illinois, right? It's just Right, right across the state line. Um, so, or a little further, but not too far. Um, point being, we passed law after law after law, increasing criminal penalties for selling meth, possessing meth, distributing meth, all of this stuff. It didn't do a fucking thing other than, you know, give politicians the ability to say in a direct mailer in their next race, like, I'm tough on the war on drugs or whatever it is. And just like the entire war on drugs is a failure, so, so were our attempts around meth. Um, Generally speaking, my position on all of this has been we should legalize drugs because we can't control them anyway. Um, so we might as well regulate them and tax them and try to make them safer um, and not waste, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars a year on all kinds of law enforcement and DEA and more jail cells and all that other shit. I still think that's the right move. The problem with fentanyl is... I, what do you do when you have a product that just kills people, right? Like there's no, so maybe the answer is the way that you eliminate the reason why, because drug dealers don't want to kill their customers. They need them to be recurring sources of revenue. That's right? what su surprises me about all the fentanyl sort of 
Right. But, but at what, the same what, time, what's you're, driving it? Well, like, think about it this way. So you're the you're the cartels, right? right? So you've already kind of lost the weed market, right? right? And so, and in many ways, you know, the whole opioid crisis, you're not competing with with Purdue, right? You know, so you lost that too. And so you got to increase your margins, which means you have to reduce your costs. And if you could substitute a cheaper product. Well, they've taken Purdue out of the... Uh, but you know what I mean. Just right. like that, that why the cartels would choose to lace products with fentanyl that are even more addictive um, and reduce their costs and increase their margins. I get why from an economic standpoint, they would choose to do it. Although, of course, they're taking great risk. But again, keep in mind, if you're the cartel, the end user is not really something you're thinking about all that much. And if you're the dealer or even sort of the, you know, kind of the boss in a local city in, in the U.S., you're you're receiving the product. You're not creating the product most of the time. So I think that's where the disconnect lies. But I guess, again, if you said we're going to legalize a couple of drugs, you know, one amphetamine, one opioid, one cannabinoid, whatever, whatever the categories are and say these will be available like alcohol is available, like weed is becoming available now, although New York could not have sort of bungled this more than they have. Um, does that then change the incentives for fentanyl? Because all of a sudden now the product is significantly cheaper um, because you're not spending all this money evading law enforcement. You have an actual system of, of commerce. Um, and as a result, you know, companies that can't afford the risk of, you know, increasing their margin by putting fentanyl into the product um, get involved instead. Uh, and so, you know, when I, when I sent you that article and was thinking about it, I was leaning more towards the, like, shit, Maybe my whole legalization theory is wrong because you can't legalize fentanyl, right? But maybe the answer is fentanyl isn't actually a drug that anybody really wants. It is purely uh, an economic choice that was made necessary by kind of global conditions. And um, you can undermine that system by making certain products legally available. I guess part of the question would become, if I'm making this up, but if cocaine, marijuana... Uh, and a few other things were legal and, uh, you know, accessible to adults and, and relatively inexpensive. Would that eliminate the black market for everything else? Because people are like, why do I need meth or heroin or whatever? Whatever you're not allowing because I can get this other thing, you right. know, legally and cheaply. Like, look, there's no moonshine black market, right? So clearly that, that worked for alcohol. Um, or will there always be a demand for products that we're just not willing to legalize? I, I don't know, but... Um, it sounds so politically risky, and given what you just said about the rollout in New York of, of yeah, the, I mean, for they, sure, like no one has any confidence Not that government's going to. But, but be here's able to what I do this. know: more and more laws against fentanyl is not going to do fucking shit. Right. That's what I know. It will have other than people having press conferences, it will have zero impact on anything. So, how do you even begin to approach a problem like because the ability to experiment with drug legalization laws is so you know, dangerous um, socially, uh, you know, making some of these more dangerous drugs available. I mean, who know, Who even knows if they are more dangerous in the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things versus alcohol, which has obviously been minimized as a, uh, you know, as a toxic drug, even though that's exactly what it is. Um, I mean, I, I just don't see how we begin to I mean, it would unwrap the situation. Like you get like Rand or McKinsey or somebody 
to sort of quietly and privately say, look at, here's the situation we're in today in terms of health-related drug issues, crime-related drug issues, social-related drug issues, um, and here's the, you know, here's where we are. If we were to have this kind of system of legalization or that kind or this kind or that kind, here's where we think the levers will move, right? And certain things will get better, certain things will get worse. Um, is there a point where you can do all of that research credibly enough, including, you know, credibly assessing the government's ability to actually roll out something successfully, which in New York has not happened, right? But other states have done better. Um, so if if you put all of that together, and then maybe if sort of career civil servants at the FDA took it from there, you know, I think you'd have to go the FDA route. But yeah, of course, the minute that this report got presented to the commissioner, they would offer. Well, it'd be good groups. to have someone on the podcast. I'm sure people have studied this. I don't know if in the comprehensive yeah, way you're discussing, but it'd be but yeah, but it'd be good to look at the models and see what what's even you know. Yeah, and there, look, there, there are examples of other countries that have liberalized laws around things like cocaine, like Portugal, and so you know there's some data to draw from. Okay, let's um, let's move on to your recommendations. You said you had a bunch, um, and I, I, the first one I have a question about is because it was it was a show that you were very excited about relatively early on and just returned for its second season, The Bear. Oh yeah. Um, so did you binge it through that? I did. You did. I and did. Give uh, me the thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up, thumbs up. Absolutely loved it. Um, I thought that they did an incredible job, and you know they really managed to capture and. I'm, I guess there's spoilers here, maybe not. But like, did you watch it? Just the first two episodes. So, you know, what's great about these characters, what always makes for great TV or just art in general, are really complex people who are not black and white. They're gray, um, and they have good qualities and bad qualities, and they both have victories and defeats. And they're all, it's all happening, like in real life, simultaneously, right? You know, um, And I think that they capture that really well, where like, they don't go overly like depressing, like just everything sucks all the time. And they don't go like Pollyannish, like, oh, look, everything worked out for the best. It's so great. They were able to, you know, develop each of these characters where there were real growth uh, in their lives and, and, and their kind of mindset and everything else and real challenges and setbacks. Like, I don't think this is a big spoiler, but the character Marcus, who's a, the pastry chef, where like, he gets to go to Copenhagen and stodge at, you know, some equivalent of Noma and learn how to really do it. And his mom dies, right? And then both of those things happen. And they're not mutually exclusive. The, his career got a lot better. He was really fulfilled by it. He felt some purpose. And he lost the person who he loved most in the world, right? So that, to, what I loved about it is that's life. Like, even when you're succeeding, you're failing. Even when you're failing, you're often succeeding in some way because people are really complex. And I think, you know, the TV, the movies, the books, the music, whatever it is that, that, that captures that complexity best is really what makes for the best art. And I think the bear does it really well. Nice. Um, one more. Yeah. So if you uh, just, no, just one. No, 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 no. Are you going to do a lot? No, I, no. I think they have more impact when you when you Just lean into one. it like that. Well, yeah. you, save them. You, you I don't. I, I mean, I've I've read up some books the last few weeks, but nothing that is has blown me away. So okay. I'm not gonna. Have you read this one by the way? Someone just that. recommended this to me. Um, you know, I started this it. Is Emma Klein, the, the guest. guest by Emma Klein. I started it. I maybe I read maybe 15, 20 pages and just kind of lost interest. But it, it might be very good. She, okay. she's a good writer. Um, the our one other TV show. Uh, the. And you you kind of made a face when I raised it before the podcast, I did? but the the offer, 
Oh, so I, the, I don't think I meant to. The offer is uh, about the making of the oh, Godfather. Oh, oh I, I didn't make a face. I actually said you, you were. Commenting. I said something critical. Yeah, and it was a ten-part show about the. But a, a fiction. You know what I've realized I like is historical, f- recent historical fiction, recent-ish, right? Just like I like the love the Wu Tang show on Hulu. Yeah, you did, and I, you got me into that. I like that too. It's good, right? So yeah, I, it's really I, good. I like when you take something that's already interesting to me, like the Godfather, like Wu Tang. And then show behind the scenes. Here's how the whole thing came together, but in a, in a non-documentary way, so that there is real narrative and excitement and pacing. And look, they a lot of the characters were real. They also made up a few characters to kind of help move the character, the story along. But um, you know, I I really enjoyed it. So the offer on Paramount. Oh, you should say what it is. Oh, it's about the making of The Godfather. Yeah. But it's it's a fictionalized ten part show about the people who made it and all the challenges that they went through in making it in terms of dealing with the mob in real life and dealing with all the challenges of Hollywood and actors and the economy. And so like, it, you know, it, it, movie producer is one of those jobs that sort of seems totally thankless in the sense <laughs> that it's just, I mean, you, you've been a movie producer, so you know this better than I do, but like you just all day, your whole job is just to resolve problem after problem after problem. Yeah, you're Mr. Problem. And um, they, it's this, the story centers on a guy named Al Ruddy, who was the producer of The Godfather, and kind of, I think it was based on a book that he wrote. He's the hero of the story, of course. But it's how he resolves the problems, and he resolves some of them in ways that are dubious and others in ways that are really clever, and sometimes both. So uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, Bradley, it's good to have you back. Yeah, great um, to be back. Please rate, review, all that shit. Yeah, yeah, episode. yeah. Um, rate, rate and review us if you can, please. Uh, P&T Knitwear is where we're broadcasting from, 180 Orchard Street, Manhattan. If you want to buy some books or get a coffee or record a free podcast. Um, oh, yeah, my book, uh, Obvious in Hindsight, novel, comes out November 7th. Please pre-order it. Okay. See you next week, Brad. See you. Bye.